Hey, yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 46 of Life Harvester Radio, the podcast where I tell my friends how much I love them and you listen. Uh, the guest this month is Elizabeth Whitney, an empowerment, love, and sexuality coach in Brooklyn, New York, and a true delight, someone who I really adore, and I think I even said as much word for word. I said, I, I adore you, Elizabeth, uh, in the course of this interview. Um, we met when uh, she moved to Brooklyn to date a very close friend of mine, and I got her a job at the diner I worked at, and we have been fast friends ever since. And um, her life and her story are really interesting. Um, she was born into a Christian cult. Her family fled. Uh, she ran away from home at 16 to go to the Bay and be really punk. She struggled with self-esteem and eating disorders for uh, a really long time, and came out on the other side with the confidence not only to keep herself healthy, but also to help others uh, through similar struggles. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I think this is a fantastic conversation. Similar to last month, there is like a lag, audio lag issue where it sounds like we're interrupting each other a lot. It sounds like she's interrupting me this time. She wasn't interrupting me. The shit just sounds weird. It's the internet's fault. We're in COVID. Just deal with it. It's going to be fine. You got to listen. You're going to love it. Okay, bye. So you grew up in L.A.? I sort of grew up in L.A. My family, um, I was born in Illinois, and my parents were part of a cult that had an arranged marriage. And we, this is, I'm getting into it too quick, but we moved, <laughs> around, <laughs> we moved around kind of a lot. And they were high, like they ended up leaving, and they were really freaked out about getting caught and I don't know how realistic that was or wasn't but we were living in like weird trailers upstate and like in an Amish community in Shiloh and we moved to LA when I was probably about 10 so from when I was 10 to 16 I lived in LA that counts as growing up I yeah think. like because you're a kid wherever you're a kid it doesn't really matter but growing up is where you're a teen yes yeah I just didn't have a strong feeling like even in LA, we moved around a lot. I never had a strong feeling of like, this is where I'm from because it was just, it felt really transient. Right. That's, um, I was not expecting a cult. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but that, that is not what I thought was going to be the opening of this conversation. Um, yeah. What do you want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. I mean, Yeah. It's, um, do you have a specific question or should I just launch? Just launch. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, my parents, um, my dad is schizophrenic and my mother is a searcher, I'll say. And they both were part of this cult that was called, um, I think it was called the church of the living word, but everybody in it called it the walk. And I'm going to preface the walk, the walk W-A-L-K. Yeah. Um, and I'll preface this by saying that I remember none of this. And all of this is like information. I mean, I remember a little bit is information that was given to me through 
like by my mother, who I think is has a tendency. I hope she doesn't listen to this to uh, um, for drama. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, so yeah, they had an arranged marriage. The person that ran the cult sort of dictated everybody's lives, and um, my father was having some like behavioral problems, and they wanted to get him taken care of. So him and my mom and my mom lived in upstate in New York and he lived in San Diego and they were in different sex and they had an arranged marriage. Um, and we lived on like the compound wherever that was in Illinois. Um, and we were there for about seven years and they, um, like I said, dictated everybody's lives and they, the pastor had apostles and my dad was one of the apostles, which is why my mom thought she was really scoring when she landed him. Um, sure. But they, um, the pastor said that she was only supposed to have one child. And so they, um, they kept making her have abortions and she got pregnant with my Fuck. sister when she was in, she was 40 and she was like, this is the last, I think this is my last chance to have another kid. So, um, they left and I don't know like how they were definitely furtive about it. I don't know how big a deal it actually was. And if people were actually like bounty hunting them, but, um, sure. we lived in like little, uh, communities for a long time and, um, and then ended up settling in LA near some other people that had also left the, um, that organization. Whoa. Did and so you don't remember what the like sort of life in the cult was like? I don't remember. So I remember almost nothing of my childhood. Sure. Um, so I don't really, you know, like I remember like a lot of times of what I remember is like, will match up to pictures that, that there is of the cult, which there isn't much. Um, right. But like they didn't celebrate. My, I had my first Christmas when I was seven. They didn't celebrate. There was like no holidays. Um, there was no birthdays, there was no anything like that. So I remember getting out and like, I, we didn't hear the radio or music or anything like that. And I remember when I got out and started public school and kids were talking about music and I just was like, felt so like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> you know, like pretending to know what wham is or something like that. Just sure. like really culturally, like, um, starting at square one. Do you remember the first music that you heard? <laughs> you know, I do. It was the Footloose soundtrack. <laughs> no that, that makes so much sense. Does it? I don't know where, like, how That's I like heard a it. For you, I don't know what the, um, I don't know what the, um, I don't actually know what's on the Footloose soundtrack besides that song Footloose, but like the sort of general vibe of Footloose, which is that like, um, uh, dancing and rock and roll and looking cool will save us from dreariness. <laughs> seems like just like a perfect route for you as I know you. And also it seems like something that someone escaping from a life in like, or like the child of a family escaping from a life where like every single part of life is regimented. Yeah. It's like really, there's like a lot to grip onto there. Yeah. I never actually thought about the context of it, but I guess it is pretty rich. Um, yeah, fuck. That's so cool. Yeah, but I remember listening to that music and being like, this is fucking amazing. Like, I'd never heard electric guitar, or, you know, like anything that wasn't just a guitar getting played, um, you know, unplugged. So I was, it totally blew my mind. And I remember being like, 
how is that woman sound like a man sounds like a woman sounds like a man you know like i just couldn't understand i didn't understand that it was different musicians playing different songs so i just was like sure in this new world men sound like women and women sound like men and it's a lot to organize <laughs> unbelievable yeah. so you went to you started going to school in la i did yeah and you had did you have like I guess you don't really remember the time in the cult, but like, or your childhood in general, which I think <laughs> is fairly normal. Like, I think mo most people I know don't remember their childhoods well. That feels really comforting. Um, yeah, I was very comforted by it when I found that out because I don't remember shit. <laughs> and it's definitely like has its roots in being um, like disassociated from my whole life uh, <laughs> because of gender shit. But uh, I think. I know plenty of non-trans people that also don't remember any moment of their childhood. Oh my God, Colin, um, I wish we could spend an hour talking about that because that is so fascinating. We should do that another yeah, time. Okay. Just talk All on right. the phone. Um, <laughs> but the, um, I guess like what I was wondering was like what the, if you remember like the sort of difference in feeling between like what it was like to be in a social, the social world of the cult versus like going into public school say like besides pretending to know what wham is like <laughs> how did you interact because seven from my vantage point as a near 40 year old seven feels like an age where you're still malleable you're still young enough to like adjust to whatever but i'm sure as a seven-year-old going from life on a cult compound to public school outside la yeah it's like, it feels huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember mostly feeling a sense of real overwhelm and like trying to run to catch up. You know, like all of these kids just had like an established social structure and they knew like mostly I just felt like I could never know everything that they knew in terms of just what was happening culturally. I feel like I still feel like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like that's also just like a common thing among people I know is feeling like sort of missed something in terms of being um, like adjusting to society and like are never going to be able to do it. <laughs> Colin, you're so comforting. Thank God for you. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for you. I'm here to comfort you, Elizabeth. That's what this whole conversation is about. Um, and so when do you start getting into like, when do you start having interests that where you're mm. like, this is the thing that I'm into? Well, I think pretty much right away, I was like obsessed with fashion. And I remember like find like catalogs were definitely something that I hadn't seen before. And I just was like, my family didn't have a lot of money. And I was just like circling pictures of things that I wanted and like nonstop drawing outfits that I was going to wear to school. I was just like really um, obsessed with like clothes and fashion and outfits. Um, what were the clothes in the cult like? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, okay. I <laughs> sorry, I don't. I don't mean to fix it on this. I just it occurs to me that you're such a um, like, just such a wild dresser, mm -hmm. you know. That I I was curious what the if there was like some sackcloth bullshit. No, I wish I could wear. tell you. Know you yes, I, mean? I could see like in your mind's eye the idea of like, oh, we look like this, but no, it was really like I think just used regular, you know, very nondescript. Um, clothing and neither of my parents ever cared about clothing at all and I think when they when I started coming out as having my own personality they were just like where did you fucking come from like they just it was they were very perplexed by it yeah what did you what did they do, what do you, like when they left the cult what was their life like mm, 
Like, what did what did they do to support your family? Well, my dad was a substitute school teacher, um, and he is like he's mentally unstable for sure, <laughs> and he can pass, but not for very long. So he sort of uh, substitute school teaching was a really good job because he didn't have to, you know, he'd go into different schools and there wasn't somebody to mark what was happening with him <laughs> and how he was with sure. people. So he did that. He was like a manager at McDonald's for a little while. Um, and my mom like kind of did odd jobs. She worked nights doing editing, um, but they were really sort of cobbling work together. There wasn't really like a structure of this is what my, what my parents do at that point, at least. Sure. Um, yeah. And then later, they got divorced and my mom, um, we ended up losing the house, but before we did, she opened up a family daycare. So I grew up in a family daycare and we had kids like all the time. And this was right before we lost our house. So she was really like hustling to try and make it work. So we were taking doctors, kids, we had shifts feeding children. I would like to stay home from school when my mom needed to run errands to be able to take care of the kids. Um, so that was like more the atmosphere of what I start, started remembering when I was a teenager, that was what was happening. Whoa. Mm, yeah. So you're, how old are you when you're like skipping school to, to take care of like four and five year olds? Yeah, probably like it was, it was like a babies and older kid. It was all kinds of kids. And for the most part we had, we started having kids that were, um, we got them all when they were like three months old and they stayed for like five years until they started going to school. So they were like from every, it was a really beautiful, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was very culturally diverse and they all thought they were mm -hmm. related, which was really sweet. Um, really yeah. Cute. And like talked for the last time that we got um, like cards from them, they were in contact like some of them were in contact with each other. So that was really beautiful. Um, but I was probably 13. Okay. And what's your, what are you getting into? Like, what are you into as a 13 year old? And you're still out in LA? Still in LA. Yeah. I was, um, yeah. All right. Cause you were there until you were 16. I think when I was starting to get into like the cure and um, like, uh, like early goth, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, before that, I was really into hip hop. That was the thing that was happening in my neighborhood. So I feel like I have a deep love of that just from being immersed in it as a kid. But coming off of that, I was getting more into just like al alternative, I would say. Yeah. What um, like what years are we talking about? Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's OK. Actual years. No idea. I can just give you like a, yeah. my age. Um, give me an era. Um, just because I I'm trying to think of like what like what's LA hip hop that you're into in the is it the late oh, yeah. 80s at this point Yeah, you I know, guess just, so. Like, I was really into like um, Slick Rick, LL Cool J. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, um, I can't think of like <laughs> those two. Like I knew every word to all the Slick Rick songs, and I was you know really deeply feeling LL Cool J, but I can't think of who else. It was just like the radio, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so listening to things on the radio. And then yeah. um, we were going to a lot of different schools. My mom was his, like, we never went to school at one place more than a year. My mother 
was like in and out of different different kinds of cults and changed changed our names a couple of times and we were moving and going to different churches so we were all we were like a little bit in flux um but one of the schools that i went to was a waldorf school which is funnily enough how we ended up losing the house because she we were on scholarship have you heard of them yeah yeah um we were on scholarship there but she um we she still had to pay and she just didn't fucking have the money but really wanted us to go so that was part of like working all of the time trying to uh keep the house and we ended up like getting kicked out of the schools and i ended up going she sent um i ended up going to hospitals and being like sort of part of my punk journey which maybe a lot of people's punk journey is ending up in psych wards um so like while we were losing the house i was starting to have eating disorder problems i was getting into punk music i was like you know getting a mohawk my mom thought i was on drugs and i think part of sending me away was being just needing me to get out (laughs) so that she could like have a clear head raise my sister try and keep you know keep a roof over our heads and um yeah and part of it actually i just think most of it was like she just needed me to be gone (laughs) that's fucking rough huh that's that's rough that's like that's just like the realization that your mom needed was like that you were an inconvenience to your mom and she needed you out of the way it's gotta be it's gotta be like a rough thing to contend with huh it's it's funny how it felt when i was a kid is like oh why am i you know, like, why am I giving my mom all these products? Like, she doesn't have enough to fucking worry about. Now I'm like throwing up in the bathroom. And, you know, I had so much guilt. I had so much guilt around it. Yeah. But yeah, that's, it never even occurred to me to be like, oh, that'd be rough. But I guess it was. <laughs> Nobody was coming out that great those years. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Um, and were you on drugs? No, no, I never did a drug in my life. No, but you never did drugs, Well, right? later, sort of. But what was really funny is when I went to, like, the first, at least the first psych ward that I went to was incredible. It's where I learned about punk. It's where I met my first boyfriend. And everybody there was talking. We might have talked about this before, but everybody was talking about smoking cigarettes. And I was like, I can't wait to get out and try cigarettes. You know, I was like, (laughs) because people were in there for lots of different drugs and drinking. But, like, the one thing everybody talked about is how bad they wanted cigarettes. And I used to, like order Nicorette gum and feel like get dizzy in my room. <laughs> and that was like, interestingly enough, how I started smoking is by getting sent to rehab. Fuck. This is like that, um, that like classic, uh, like um, criticism of carceral logic in general, where it's <laughs> like people go to these places to, that are like not actually made for reform. You know, it's like a criticism of prison where like you send someone, as a punishment to a violent place and they come out just like further. Right. Yeah. With so uh, much information on how to. (laughs) Yeah. Just like do new and different crimes. It's such a funny thing that. uh, Yeah. That's I had, I had a friend when I was a kid who like, whose parents sent him away to some place for like smoking weed one time or something. Mm -hmm. And he came out like a fucking uh, on pills or something. You know, it's just like, but yeah, that's um, what was the first punk that you heard? Subhumans. Subhumans, yeah, cool. not Canadian subhumans. Um, no, no, the, the <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> yeah, I was obsessed. My who the person that ended up being my first boyfriend. Um, like I remember 
after meds we were like in the hallway and he played it for me and i was just like oh my god my mind is so blown what was his deal um he was you know his parents were jehovah's witnesses he was like pretty deep into being an alcoholic at only 14 um but he was just like the i was obsessed with him yeah um so great place to meet your first boyfriend did did the did the relationship (laughs) persist after you guys were released it did you know we were kind of on and off for like probably three or four years I was really that was like my first the first time I ever like cared about anybody and I don't know if how you were your first time you were in love but I just was like I love you I never want to be away from you when I'm away from you I feel like I can't breathe um (laughs) I want to be with you all the time I just was really like Noel holds holds barged um all in and then later learned how to game plan actually keep him around so Learn how to what? Keep him around. <laughs> like I was like, oh, oh you're sure. gonna have to do some amount of like playing games and um, and pretending not to care in order to actually keep this going. Keep maintaining. Yeah. <laughs> um. Fuck. Wow. Uh, and so you said you were kind of in and out of um, psych wards since yeah. you were young. And when you left LA when you were 16, is that was that with your family or did you leave? No, I left on my own. Okay. Um, so you're, so you get into punk when you're 14 in the psych ward. Are you, were you also 14? I didn't think I was that. 14. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause of the subhumans <laughs> and you learn about smoking, which sounds awesome and is awesome. Um, I love smoking so much. And so it seems like net positive, um, so far. Yeah. If like what you came out of there with was smoking and, um, and and the sub yeah i mean later um, honestly the the psych words got much worse when my insurance ran out and when i was at county places it was not that anymore i'm, <laughs> I'm sure um was it always for uh like eating disorder stuff it was yeah yeah and like you know kind of lightweight attempts suicide attempts but a lot of eating I was like having eating problems at school and as it is when you have an addiction and you think that no one knows everybody knows and they call child family services and them coming to the house and we had the daycare was like not great um so you know I think after that my mom just really it was more helpful for me not to be there (laughs) to be there um, so sure. for the next, like basically until, um, I was sort of in and like I, I was in and out, but I was in and out until I, until I left LA. Yeah. Where'd you go? The Bay area. That's when you mm-hmm. went to the Bay. Do I know that first boyfriend? Is that, is that who I think it is? Oh, I don't think you do. No, that was no my first okay, boyfriend was like, um, a squatter in LA and you know, was, he was in and he was traveling around and, um, mostly living like in squats and spanging on the street. <laughs> True. Uh, gutter that was amazing. And yeah. I went to school at Melrose. So it was like, right. I could get off school and just cruise down and, um, and hang out with them afterwards was pretty ideal. Wow. That sounds really fun. <laughs> like getting out of high school and going to see your, your like, Cool squatter boyfriend <laughs> who's spanging on the street. It seems it's like, so... like I'm sure there's like 
grim stuff about it too or whatever but like it just seems cool it felt so cool colin <laughs> yeah it's funny later to like think about it in more context but at the time it was just like the best yeah yeah thanks for um, feeling that with me <laughs> oh a hundred percent i'm like like a you know i mean i think like historically i'm just like a real enabler a lot of the time because i just think a lot of stuff is cool that's really bad for people um <laughs> but like or like like i think dangerous stuff is i don't know what it is i we're not here to talk about me but, but i wish we were is, because i feel like that there's a lot of things in danger that make you feel alive and feeling alive is fucking yeah, like what sure. we're here for you got to touch the void sometimes it's an old therapist God, you break me. my heart colin she was so good <laughs> Doc G. Um, she very um, unprofessionally took on my best friend as a, ther as a uh -huh. client. And then we would just say nice things about each other all the time. Um, and we were like just trying to figure out how to get invited to pass over at her and her wife's uh, apartment. Um, it was like really not a, such a great therapeutic relationship, but it was cool. Um, oh God, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you more about yeah. her. Some I mean, I time. feel like She's that wild. when you're in when you're in a place where whatever structure it is, when you are getting cared for by somebody that's not your parents, and it hasn't worked out so great with your parents, you're really trying to figure out like, how am I going to be their kid? This seems cool. <laughs> it seems like they have it figured out. And I definitely remember like different therapists I had being like using every manipulative power in my book to be like, how can I get them to take me? <laughs> Love yeah. me. Yeah. Take me, take me <laughs> on. Um, so where do you go when you, why did you go to the bed? Um, I had friends that moved there and honestly, I came back from visiting once and my boyfriend, um, I was trying to make him jealous and I was like, what would you do if I moved to the Bay area? And he said, you will never leave your mom's house, which like when I think about when I think back, I'm like, I was 16. You know what I mean? That's not like there's no for for like foreboding. <laughs> That's not so foreshadowing being 16 and living at home. But I when he said that, I was like, fuck you, I'm moving. So um, I ended up just convincing them to share. They each had twin beds in one room together. And I would alternate nights sharing their twin bed with each of them. <laughs> Oh, that's so They're cute. the best. I can't Where believe uh, I was living at this place um, in North Oakland on Genoa Street. And I cannot believe that they wow. agreed to let to like do that, but they did, and it was really sweet. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> the things that we do when we're young are just so like just the ways that I was willing to live or like excited. Oh to yeah. Live yeah, no, it was thrilling. We're just like yeah, rules. <laughs> To be like, I'm uncomfortable all the time. Like, <laughs> aren't you proud of me? <laughs> Don't you think I'm cool? I'm uncomfortable constantly. I never really relax. <laughs> Did you stop so going to school? When you I had actually, I, um, I finished high school. There was all of these courses that I was missing because of being in the hospitals. And I busted ass and went to night school and finished. And the minute I finished, I left. So I finished, um, yeah, when I was 16. So I did graduate. Oh, whoa. So you graduated high school early. Yeah. Damn. That's Thanks, cool. Colin. <laughs> 
that would be the end of my education. So I'm glad your point, you're highlighting it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that's it. Um, to just be like, I'm just going to fucking finish this thing. Yeah. That sucks. I'm going to get it done with and get the yeah, fuck out. Yeah, that's what happened. What, what did you do? Like, what, what did you do with your time in, in the Bay? Were you, were you involved in the, um, like that? North Bay punk sure. Scene. I mean, I don't know which North Bay punk scene, but um, I worked at, I did telemarketing at SDNA, which anybody near that time in the Bay Area also probably did because it was one of the only jobs if you looked like a total freak. Um, and the person that ran that later, you know, Boots Riley, he later yeah. made a movie about that place. Which you may or may not. Oh no, yeah. fucking way! You worked at the Whoa. place that that movie yeah. was based on. That movie. Yeah. Cool. It was funny because it's. I mean, obviously, it's a really fantastic uh, exaggeration, but there's so many parts of it. When I saw that, I'm like, oh yeah, there's that person, there's that person, there's that person. Um, and it was really like fun. I was t- actually terrible at telemarketing, but the person that ran the marketers for the most part, his name was Norris and he was fabulous and he really liked me. So he basically was like, how about if you clean here and how about if you just come dust off a couple phones, take a couple hours, walk around and then come back and clock out. So that was like the greatest job in obviously in the world where I didn't do anything um, and would go clock in and then like walk around Berkeley and come back and clock out later. But it was really like so many punks worked there and it was really like vibrant and alive and you got to look how you wanted. And I remember <laughs> the person that did the hiring, um, I was asking him, Hey Steve, have you, was there ever anybody that you wouldn't hire? And he was like, yeah, this guy came in and he was wearing a football helmet and you know, I was like, oh, you take the football helmet off. And the guy was like, nah, man, I'm not taking this helmet off. And he was like, and I still would have hired him, but he just couldn't hold the phone up. (laughs) (laughs) But it was real. Like you were in that place with every person off the street that was totally unhirable. And a lot of people that seemed like they didn't have basic life skills, like really killed it with selling things over the phone. I was totally hopeless at it because I feel such empathy for people and especially like where I came from with money. When people talk about money at all, I'm like, of course you don't have money. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. How could I even call you? So it's not. Yeah. I'm too, I'm too sensitive to be a telephone. Yeah. No, it's not. Like to, or to be good at it. I feel like you're very relatable. Um, also, I feel like you're saying? so likable and relatable that you might be really good at it. I'm affable, but I don't, I, I can't convince, like, I'm, like, even when I was working in restaurants, like, I could never up. Yeah, no, gross, totally. You know what I mean? It was just, like, I will do good, I will, it will be good enough if these people just get exactly yeah. what they want. I don't want them to, I do not want to, I don't want to be involved in coercion. of this Yeah, thing. and then you have to fucking look at them, and they look like they got hit by a truck after they ate, and you're like, I did this. Yeah, or, like, when they look at the bill, and they're just like, yeah. Oh, like, Sometimes I didn't mind that because people seemed like dicks, but like mostly I just don't want to make anyone miserable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a general credo. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I meant earlier. You you said North Oakland, so I said North Bay punk scene, which was like I think at the time we're talking about is probably like weird spaz slap a ham record stuff. But I, I actually meant East Bay oh. um, punk yeah. scene before, yeah. which I think is actually what yeah. you were involved in. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, moving to the Bay Area was incredible because in LA, you like people would <laughs> different scene. Like I feel like people would like roll down their car car windows and laugh at you and throw stuff at you. And like I would try and bike places and end up um, barfing by the side of the road, getting heat stroke. And you know, people would like roll down their windows and be like, "Where do you think you're going?" And they're right because where do you think you're going? You can't get anywhere. Maybe now you can. Um, but being a punk there was more felt scarier. And when I moved to the Bay Area, it felt like fucking Disneyland. <laughs> like everybody looked cool. Everybody looked like a freak. No one seemed like they got fucked with. It was really like so vibrant and beautiful and free. Yeah. I mean, amazing. everybody later that I talked to who lived in the Bay Area was like, thanks for coming and ruining it. But um, it <laughs> felt amazing to me. And I'm so glad that they... Uh, did such groundbreaking work to make a place that I could be a freak and come and live. Yeah. What were you, um, what, like, what were like the bands that your friends were in or whatever that you were going to see or that you guys were excited about um, that you were into hmm. at the time? It's funny. The, like, I don't have as big a memory as that. There was like Black Fork. Do you remember them? Oh um, yeah. Like Black Fork and Dead and Gone and, um, like Los Crudos a little bit. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember the exact. I I don't remember. That's okay. I've, I I don't um, care about bands. <laughs> that surprises me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I, I mean, I like music a lot, but I don't like. I never am like. Uh, like I'm stoked about shows because I get to walk around outside and talk to people. God, like, Colin, you, know, like, you are such. A I very rarely see a band play and I'm like, oh, this is really great. I'm so glad I'm here. You know, like usually I'm watching a band play and I'm just like, when is this going to be over? So I could tell my friends <laughs> they did a good job slash like, why am I doing this again? <laughs> and sometimes you have those moments where you're like, I'm so glad I'm part of this. This is so, you know, I saw my friend Tay who was on the um, podcast a few months ago. Um, she came through town Pittsburgh, um, uh, like on this tour with this band that had been like this kind of younger friend of theirs, um, had written these poems and she, and like her and some other people wrote the music for it. And he was the originally the singer and he had just committed Whoa. suicide and they went on this tour that was like this kind of like the tour was already, uh -huh. booked, you know, and they just did the tour and it was this kind of like the whole tour was this grieving oh, process. Shit. Um, and and like watching them play i was just like it felt like i was participating in something really fuck yeah that i got to witness something really beautiful you know and there or like i had a friend who was killed by a drunk driver um in i want to say 2005 or six and um on the west side highways drunk guy drove down the oh. bike path um, oh Colin, i'm so sorry and um I mean, we got, uh, yes, thank you. We got, you know, it's part of what, I think it's part of what we signed up for, right? It's like just to have a bunch of dead <laughs> friends, um, which is a bummer, but it's so fucked. But I remember once, like when my, one of my, my first like really close friend died and then there was like a spate of other deaths. And then I was, I ran into your boyfriend and I was like, this is going to like taper off <laughs> until I'm in my fifties. Right. Like we're going to have like a bunch of them in my twenties. 
And then in my 30s and 40s, everyone's going to kind of chill. And then like in the, my 50s, they'll start dying from alcohol and <laughs> drugs and stuff, right? And he was just like, it, it never ends. It starts now and it never ends. You're going to lose friends every year for the rest of your like life. I feel like Aaron is everyone's death doula. Um, <laughs> dude, truly, death doula is such a good... Um, but anyway, I, you know, I left that. There was a funeral for Eric, um, mm-hmm. Eric Ng. Um, and it was at St. Mark's mm-hmm. church and this like this shithead activist, um, preacher, Reverend Billy, who I was just like a blowhard who really annoyed me and was like always doing, um, like performance actions or whatever. That's just like, it's fucking corny yeah. and probably everywhere shit. Um, he was, he gave the sermon or like the, the service or whatever. And I was so nervous and he actually did a really beautiful job and I was like feeling kind of crazy and I was drinking and riding my bike around and I, I was biking home to Brooklyn and I, and there was a show at no Rio and I walked in and Cindy mm. crab was there on tour with, um, trouble, 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 this band that she was in when she was living uh-huh. in Asheville at some point. And, and like watching them play after that funeral, like in the middle of the afternoon, you know, i I felt this catharsis. Mm. I like lost myself in, being part of a community and being part of punk or whatever in this way that like is really transcendent. And so I don't mean to say that like shows are stupid or even though that's (laughs) what I'm saying, they generally are. Um, But I totally understand not remembering bands. I think like, cause who cares? Like the point is not the bands. The point is like, who was your roommate? Who were you gossiping with? You know, like who (laughs) dressed the best, who, um, you know what I mean? Like that's the stuff that I like. Which member of Raúl has the coolest fashion or whatever? You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm curious. But there is what. That, but but you know I saying? think what you're saying feels so true. Is that in like in punk, you were so able to lose yourself, and it shows you were so able to like any emotion that you had was fine, and you could express it, and you could dance it, and be with people, and you could scream and yell and move, and it was like. I don't know. Now, knowing what I know, I think of completing stress cycles, you know, and like what your nervous system needs to do to finish a stress cycle. And that's like, you're doing that. You're with people, you're connecting with them, you're moving your body, you're shaking, and you're like telling your nervous system that really bad thing is done now. Holy shit. I mean, not done now, but you know, like animals do that. Animals fight with each other. And then they shake afterward and then they're fine. And we don't, we like pack it in and bury it and hold it. And it lives inside of our bodies, even though we don't think it does. And so I think like that, like what you're talking about at punk shows is like what I fucking loved about punk is that it was so like the depths of despair and love and heartbreak. It was just like all of it was welcome and everybody was feeling it and there was no trying to hide it or cover it up it was just like it was allowed and there wasn't that wasn't something that existed so much in everyday normal society yeah no it felt like for me uh like a a huge um like i had found a place that made sense for me to be in in like a world that didn't make sense to me or that i didn't that gives me goosebumps Um, so let's, I know, rein it in. <laughs> yeah, I got to rein it in. Let's, keep this, let's stay. I, I guess I just like, I try to use the chronology as a, as like a guiding, um, strand to sure. run through the whole conversation. And so you're, 
16 and you're living in the Bay and who yeah. cares which bands it was. <laughs> the are really cool. And, um, the, uh, and you're living with your friends and you're done with high school and you're working mm-hmm. at the telemarketer place. And are you, you still struggling with, uh, like body stuff you know there was disorders? like a brief period of moving away from my parents house that I feel like th- and like getting to ride a bike and move my body and be so immersed in like my friends and freedom that it didn't like there is there was like a number of years where that wasn't an issue as much and it's hard to remember exactly when that was but it didn't that didn't feel like the prevailing mm-hmm. thing that was happening at that point um it was really like we all got uh, a place together, which I ended up living in for 20 years um, that was in North Oakland and like a bunch of punks moved in and it was like, I was living my best life. It was the best. Yeah. It was like mostly women. Yeah. Um, and it, and a lot of them I knew from the, I knew from LA, a lot of them moved from LA, but it was just really like a beautiful, you know, when you're finding each other as like you're just past being a teenager and you're finding each other and it just was magical. <laughs> that's really sweet. Yeah. That's, is that the one you were writing a little bit about like a few weeks ago? Were you, oh like, yeah. Yeah. I Instagram? ended up like, like I said, I lived there for 20 years and not all of those people. Li- I was the only one that lived there for 20 years, but it went through many, many cycles. Um, so many of them yeah. ended up being so, really impactful for me in my life. And I got to live and meet, live with and meet so many amazing people. It was just the best. We were like riding mattresses up and down stairs and it felt like Pee Wee's Playhouse or something, but we got to make it up and it was, it was like my introduction and Janelle and Seth were a big part of this, but of just being like having the imagination and being willing to do the work to make your life so fucking fun. (laughs) Like where we were going on adventures yeah. all the time, you know, like we would go to haunted houses for Halloween. Like we did this super elaborate Christmas. Like we would do secret Santa and buy each other just like the most insane luxury items, just like balls <laughs> to the wall, giving each other the childhoods we never had. It was just like, oh God, it was such a beautiful and sweet time. And those people are so incredible. And I feel so. Yeah. yeah. So that was. I mean, now I got goosebumps. Like that's, I just think about like, that's, that's all the potential that's there in, in like what all, Mm -hmm. I think all of us were looking for in punk, right. Which is like to find a place where you can guilelessly explore yourself, uh, like alongside others in, in, with like a sense of community and like collective purpose. Like it's so, yeah. Great. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, but the, I guess if you're saying that the, um, the eating disorders were gone for mm. a little bit, that means that yeah. they returned. <laughs> um, I think that when, you know, later you have more perspective on this, but at the time I just, when things got really stressful, that was like my coping strategy. So, um, sure. whenever, you know, like my mom got in a couple of car accidents. There just are things that are happening in life. And any time that anything wasn't going smoothly or when things were falling apart, that was sort of like how I coped. And definitely working at restaurants, like yeah. <laughs> when you're dealing with food and stress and um, and money, like that was not a great recipe for um, for my eating disorder. 
And I mean, despite having been fired by my best friend from a job that we were in together, I think you're a very gifted <laughs> server. That's rich. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. I wanted to hear you. Oh my God, it's terrible at serving. <laughs> I know. Oh, um, you got a good yeah. personality. No, though. it's funny. Even my, I never got better at it, but my first job, like I've gotten a lot of jobs where people just liked me. So lied for me and like, let me continue working there, even though it wasn't great. But my first serving job was at Cafe du Nord and I lied to get the job saying that I had waited tables before. And I was a cocktail waitress and I never fucking drank before. So people would order seven and sevens and I would be like, and this was not in the time of cell phones, so I couldn't look it up. So I just go through the computer being like, what's seven? What's seven? I don't know what seven is. Like I had, you know, it was sloppy. But later the manager, I was like, do you know I never even had a serving job before this? And he was like, no shit. You were the worst server any of us had ever seen. We lied to the boss and told them that you were doing a great job. And we just hoped you would get better, which you did nominally. Yeah. Nominally. Anyway. Um, yeah. It's a good thing I wasn't good at that con because that wasn't the job for me. Um, no. Although it was a job that you were really in for a very bad. long time. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no. I don't good. recall you being bad. I, I, All right. I don't think we ever worked together. Um, I am simply taking your word for it that you were not good. I, I thought, I, I assumed you were. Yeah. I have a really bad memory for people's faces, which is not a great skill set for working in restaurants so um being able to remember who ordered what or even when people come up to you and you ask if they need help being seated and you've already waited on that you know what i mean there's <laughs> just like not <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah but sure. it, it was nice for get like i like the atmosphere i liked other people that worked at restaurants i got to meet you god what a gift mm -hmm. yeah that is you know how we, how we met, met actually is that you were the only person of Aaron's friends that rooted for me, um, everybody else was like, don't go out with her. <laughs> so I have such a warm place really? in my heart for you. Yeah, like my dear friends can told him, don't do it. <laughs> wow, because I definitely was just like, Aww, dude, she God. rules. Colin, I wish I could squeeze um, you. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, I know that in a, in a, in a sense, the like career trajectory that you've taken is in some ways equivalent to uh, just like reenacting you going shopping with me in like a like a different way <laughs> with all kinds of people about issues besides their wardrobe. But like you are the most fun person literally in the world to go shopping with because we'll be in a store. And if I just like accidentally touch something, you're like, oh, you should take that and try it on. <laughs> And then if I try it on, you're not like, you're not like, looks fucking great every single time. Sometimes you're like, <laughs> take it off. Um, and like, and it's just, but like, but because you open up the, the space for things that I would, you know, I just bumped into, you know, I wouldn't put that sweater on. But you were like, no, 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 try it on. You were just, you were just touching it. You should try it on if you want to touch it. You want to probably wear it. I love it, try know? it on. Um, yeah. They'll put that on my yeah. tombstone. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Exactly. Oh, hang on. I've got to give my dog some five flower tincture. There we go. Don't spit it all over the place. Good girl. Okay. So what's the, how do you get from um, the telemarketing to 
mm. Cafe du Nord. Yeah. Um, you said it was called? Let's see. I think I just, I was telemarketing and then I was like doing like nannying stuff, like taking care of kids. I was on SSI for a little while um, after being in the hospitals and trying to do stuff under the table. I worked at like a head shop. I worked a lot like at a tattoo parlor. Um, and then I think I just like, I had friends that were servers and they made so much money and I had never had money. Yeah. So I really wanted to have it, <laughs> but it's funny. I think yeah, back and I'm like, Oh, that, like I spent so much fucking time working at restaurants and it's really easy to look back and be like, why did I waste my life? Like, why did, what did I do for 20 years where my rent was $400 and I didn't fucking make anything of my life. But the person that I knew that was a server, when I told her I wanted to do it, she was like, oh, you could never do that. You're way too shy. And I was. I was deeply, 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 painfully shy. Um, and shy isn't the word. I was, like, introverted mm -hmm. and, um, like, had a lightweight disdain for other people. <laughs> and, and, like, yeah, anyway... So serving was rough for me, but I feel like it really helped me be able to talk to people and being able to talk to people is such an incredible life skill and also makes you feel more connected and like people aren't terrible. And um, I don't know. I just feel so grateful that I like that. She said that, that I kept trying, that the people lied for me that needed to lie for me to be able to keep doing it. And that I learned how to basically talk to anybody just like you. Yeah. I credit my waitress personality with so many of the, like the ease of my, myself yeah. in social situations. It's incredible. In such an intense yeah, way. You're so likable, Colin. <laughs> Dude, I try so hard to be likable. Oh. <laughs> um, it's true. Um, so when you, I vaguely remember a conversation where you were like, right before you stopped, um, waitressing and started go and going to like um, mm -hmm. yoga teacher school where you were like all I'm gonna do is be a waitress. <laughs> this is my this is my thing I found my thing yeah and this is what it is and I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna just like be a I'm just gonna live my life and look really cool and be a waitress and I'm like <laughs> pretty stoked about that um and so like it makes sense that you were like yeah did that for 20 years because you were like this feels comfortable this feels yeah like i know what it is um do you think that if you hadn't left the bay you would have made some of the other shifts i don't it's i don't think so. i'm who knows but yeah i, feel I guess like a hard thing in to part there's so many things and i feel like this is a thing that it's easy to get caught in where you have cheap rent and that's like the flag that you hold up but having to hustle was really good for me and having to figure out how to make things work is really such a big part of building confidence and feeling like you can survive in the world and that you don't need um, like special treatment or something. Um, and yeah. I, I don't, a large part, I remember very strongly feeling that way. And I felt like that almost reflects, like I lived with people that did such cool creative stuff and i felt honestly like so mm -hmm. intimidated by that um that i think i really dug my heels in the sand of like this is all i am don't expect anything of from me and i remember like when seth and janelle were like working on <laughs> their, 
I would always be like, oh, are we working on stuff? Like I gave them so much shit about doing their craft and working hard and like continuing to do things and putting things out. Cause I'm like, I want to hang, let's hang. <laughs> like your creative work is really getting in right. the way of us like having fun and chilling on the porch. But I think in large part that um, the idea of waitressing forever was just like f- fear. So you left the Bay after 20 mm-hmm. years of living in the same house. Yeah. You you came to New York and then went back to the Bay. That's right. And you yeah. Came back to New York. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I remember. You're partly so, why I came back. So I'm glad you remember. So you, <laughs> hell yeah. Um, so you left the Bay for, yeah. I kind of lost the right? coin toss of where we were going to live. Cause no shit. I, really? I you guys flipped the coin? We? It was, well, who flipped, who flipped it? it is, I think probably Aaron knew all along we were going to end up here. Um, and it yeah. was just, um, and thank God we did, but I was really resistant to it in part because the idea of like moving to a place and only having your boyfriend was just like, is there a worse possibility? Like, could your relationship start off on more unsure footing? And I'm sure, I don't know how you felt when you moved across the country, but I just was like, this is not a recipe for success. I think I had like a totally different, I had like, A, I, I, I was like coming out of a very claustrophobic situation and like, I also had done enough like traveling and like sort of oogle adjacent, mm-hmm. just like bopping yeah. around the US that I was like, oh, I can show up in a town and make, make some friends. Um, the thing for me that, that I, that was like a kind of harsh reality check was that, um, the the um the the amount of friends that you make when you show up in a town and like just like move into yeah. under the stairs at some punk house and are a wasted oogle that's just like trying to just like do so drugs many and party friends. and hang out with everyone all the time yeah. so many versus the amount of friends that you make when you are sober um and in your 30s and live yeah, crushing with your girlfriend and Becca actually pointed out that she was like, she didn't use these words. I can't remember her exact words, but she was like, essentially she was like the ambient friend making that happens when you're just going out trying to get laid <laughs> is like, is not something that we should dismiss, right? That like being single, the like being out in the world as your most charming possible self, when you're single, they're like the, the relationships and like sex or whatever that come out of that are all really important and great and like oftentimes yeah. seem to be the stated goal or whatever but like the friendships that you make because you and someone mm-hmm. else are just goofing well um oftentimes last longer than any of their relationships oh, yeah, or totally. their sex or anything um and so and she was like yeah it's just like really interesting being in a place where like we're both neither one of us is looking for that and so like we're also not finding the accidental because when we moved to pittsburgh this mm-hmm. was an observation she made um, so we're also not finding those same. Oh, interesting. Other sure. Um, but yeah, no, I went into it moving across the country, just like being like, A, right. how have I never moved across <laughs> the country for a girl before? Like, I think I said that to you literally, like in the yeah, car when I was helping that. with that mattress. Um, De nada, anytime. Because um, like, it just seems so mean yeah. to just move across the country, you know? And I just hadn't, hadn't done it because I hadn't met 
yeah. a girl that made me want to move across the country yet. And B, I was just like, I'm affable. I can make friends anywhere. And I, I, I don't think I, I went into it with the expectations yeah. that it would be as hard as it was. Uh, which like, it seems like you had much more realistic. Yeah. I mean, um, I did and I didn't like, I, th- I think I just like, I feel like when you imagine uh, someone being a good girlfriend, which I was really interested in being, you think of that girlfriend as having lots of friends, their own interest, a creative project. You know what I mean? Like not being someone that's like, when are you going to get home? I don't, you know, like. I'm also very concerned <laughs> with being a good girlfriend. So that like, I strongly relate. Like that's one of my top priorities in the world is just. Well, like, it being wasn't a really honestly being so much a good girlfriend. Um, it was like being a cool girlfriend, yeah. which maybe is the same thing, but I just like. Yeah. <laughs> They're part and parcel. Um, but I was so like, I was not prepared for how lonely I would be. Like I would follow behind groups of women laughing, like stepping on the back of their shoes. And like, if somebody opened a door for me, I would start crying. I was like very, it was surprising how lonely I was. Yeah. That sounds really difficult. Character. Um, is that I why you we broke the up. first time? Um, yeah. So right. I lived here for a little while after that. And then um, I just really missed California. And then I moved back to California. And is, as is often the case, California felt really different <laughs> than it did when I lived there before. Like the in the intervening year, it had changed? I, or like in the intervening year, changed. you had changed? Or a little bit? Yeah, I think there was just like, I spent 20 years sitting at a kitchen table wondering who was going to come in the kitchen. And then all of a sudden when I moved back, I'm like, are we just sitting at the kitchen table? <laughs> like, but I did a lot of inner work that was very, very important. Um, I think that is the first time that I started having self-inquiry. So that's when you first started being like, what am I doing in terms of, I guess not in terms <laughs> of your goal to be a waitress forever, because that you still had when Definitely. you moved back to New York the second time, but in terms of um, like, dealing with some of your personal struggle. Yeah. Like yeah. I was going stuff. through a really like those, those were really dark times as far as the eating disorder goes and the relationship falling apart was really painful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I started going to therapy in the Bay area for the first time, which I'd never done before. Like sometimes it's easy to be in a relationship and feel like I'm this way because of this person, because of, you know, the monstrosity of them and they forced me to be this and I can't be my true self. And then like what I felt like is I got to come home and be my true self. And I'm like, do I want this? (laughs) Is this the true self, my absolute best self? Or, you know, maybe this. My true self sucks. (laughs) Or just like you can only eat cake for so long, you know, like. um, So Mm -hmm. I think I went really hard into like all of the things that I've been kind of hiding or obscuring to be the kind of person that I thought that my partner wanted. And I fully dove into them when I moved back and found that they weren't that fulfilling. Um, and then, yeah, Fuck. not that they're bad, but just that like, that wasn't the sum of my parts. Yeah, so sure. I started going, God, this sounds so cheesy when I say it, but I started going to yoga classes and going to therapy and like reading books and none of the, like none of my friends, Later, I always find out that there's like a whole, they're like, oh, you didn't know about the punk wellness scene, but there, I didn't know about, if that existed, I didn't know about that. I felt about like that about straight edge. Like later people are like, oh, you're straight edge. And I was like, oh, there's people playing sports that didn't drink. Where, why didn't I know about that? Um, 
but yeah, I was. You are not straight. Like you might be abstinent from those things, but you are not. I mean, maybe you're like a new kind of straight edge that only 23 year olds I know uh, are these days where it's like divorced from the historic um, straight edge that was like uh, about being violent packs of men roving the streets, like beating up homeless people and uh, opposing abortion or whatever fucking straight edge people were doing in the. um, Yeah, no, you're not. I think that you are a, like a person that does not do drugs, but that doesn't make you don't have to. I know, but it's just because of that. Well, Although I guess when you I do was like a kid, sports. everybody I knew was wasted. I was the only person that didn't fucking drink. Everybody was a drug addict. Everybody mm-hmm. was wasted. I was like, it was really lonely and cold when you're not drunk and you're outside somewhere. Um, sure. So I think like later when I moved to the Bay Area and people talked about straight edge, it wasn't something I totally like knew about and when i heard about it the idea of like you know the form i heard about which was like positivity in sports i was like that sounds cool it would have been nice to be doing something besides you know like you know giving narcal to my friends or something yeah i just can't imagine you participating in any subculture whose primary like sartorial modes are air (laughs) matches and like champion shorts, you know, I think that's that's real. You know, there's like, there's like a way that, that you're into sports. It's like about flash dance or something, you know, where it's like, it's sports, but it's also that I (laughs) heard did a jumping jack. That's a great compliment. (laughs) Yeah. I'm here to say nice things to you. I adore you, Elizabeth. I adore you. I, I, I absolutely think I'm so glad that we're friends. Um, so mm-hmm. this journey of self-searching, it goes on for two years in New York yeah. or in, in back in the Bay where you have changed, but the Bay is um, still. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that people are do, do fucking so many cool things here, but it just like, I felt like I'd been around something that was a little like, you know, moving here. People are like, what are you doing? What's your plan? What's, you know, there's a different energy that didn't exist. And then once you got to New York, uh, you got a job at the restaurant. We Thanks for getting me that job, fantastic. Colin. I don't think we ever That's actually worked. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, <laughs> oh, do you ever need a job at a restaurant again? <laughs> do you ever regress? Uh, I am here to help you. Um, and then you mm-hmm. learned how to teach yoga. And you were mm-hmm. working at the yoga I, school took a yoga teacher training which actually didn't I didn't really know how to teach yoga but I um, definitely was doing things that I was scared of and challenging myself in new ways so I was teaching yoga and um, one of the things I do to new yoga teachers is when they give when they do the class recommendations they'll also say it's good for new people or people with injuries which is like I don't know why they would say that because people would come in with injuries and I'd be like I have no fucking idea what to tell you um, because while my yoga teacher training was very eye-opening and informative, it didn't actually teach me anything about like body biomechanics mecha- or, um, <laughs> I shouldn't say the, the person that taught me was really lovely and opened up my whole world, but there wasn't a lot of actual, like, um, it's, it's a hard thing to fit in, like, you know, the amount of time that you need it to graduate. So anyway, after that, I took, yeah. uh, I did a Pilates teacher training that was very, in, um, 
that was sort of more geared toward people working with physical therapists um, or people that have had surgeries. So it was a lot like more of a rehab modality. And I learned a ton about biomechanics and the body and started teaching Pilates, which I actually felt like um, I knew what I was doing and was helping people. (laughs) And it was a lot more one-on-one. And that is actually, um, I'll segue this for you, how I ended up doing the work that I do now, which is that I ended up working pretty much primarily with mostly women. Um, And when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening, the working one-on-one with women became really like everybody was experiencing so much insane trauma in their bodies. And it was like seeing it on such a massive scale was so gnarly and not being able to speak to it in a, or not feeling like I could hold space for it in a way that I wanted to um, and feeling it in my own body. And just, it felt like um, a huge thing that was happening that there wasn't a structure around. And so um, that, and then also this getting to work one-on-one with, with women, I got to hear a lot of, and I'm doing a lot of gross generalizations in terms of, um, like all of the people that I worked with and, um, and how people identify, but most of the people that I work with had a really, I would get to hear the voice in their head, you know, like how they talk to themselves. And it was so, Mm-hmm. brutal and so harsh and so um punishing and realizing like oh this is really normal that we talk to ourselves this way and like I talk to myself this way and we grew up yeah. being like this is how like this is how we talk to our bodies or this is like the um like the scale that we judge ourselves against is just so brutal um And so I did a training, um, like a love and sex and relationship coaching training program to sort of be able to hold better space for um, trauma and body awareness and, um, and shifting out of like punishing behaviors and different types of addiction. Wow. And I'm sure your own history like really informs your um, capabilities in that arena. You know, like it's, I'm sure like the fact that you are someone who has dealt with a lot of trauma in that realm of your life is really beneficial to sort of. Yeah, well, it's, other the interesting thing about it is how I was so like that was such a big shame piece for me. And it's it was interesting to realize how many people were also and especially in the punk scene, like it was it felt almost doubly shameful to be in this scene that was like, so about freedom and, um, and like not caring and then having this like deep shame of your body and wanting it to look a certain way and feeling, and it just was so, it was sticky. Yeah. Well, cause there's like the, the, like just the normal shame that society wants every woman to feel. And then there's the double shame of like, I am a, feminist uh ostensibly raised in like a feminist or like you know part of a a broader feminist culture and i'm still i know better you know big quotes and i still am um like falling victim to these totally like and but it was really interesting to be like oh 
I guess that was happening to all punk women. <laughs> like that was such a common story. And I just, that yeah. was not something that we talked about. And it was something I felt super alone in. So it was really surprising when I started talking about it to be like, oh, this was happening. Every, like this was so common. And I don't know how everybody else kept it a secret <laughs> or how that didn't end up being part of the conversation because yeah. we were talking about so many things that felt so important and so big and so personal, but that was something that it was like such a deep shame of mine. And um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a conversation I was having with people. Yeah. <laughs> and now you do. Well, I, yeah. 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 Um, what does being a love and sex coach actually no. entail? Like, what is that? Well, basically, that I have to be careful about, it's hard to talk about something you care about deeply. And also that it, it is a really big umbrella. Um, but basically, I mm -hmm. work with people on a desire. Like, it's a really desire-based system. Um, so whatever your desire is, it's um, like using the, the lens of love and sex and sometimes relationships. I tend to work less with relationships, um, but a lot with like sex and pleasure and um, sort of agency and empowerment um, in getting somebody what their goal is. <laughs> and that like it, that shows up in a lot of ways. Like you're, I think I, when I think of therapy or something like that, that it's really easy to talk, to spend a lot of time spinning I shouldn't say spinning to spend a lot of time talking about the things that went wrong or what didn't work or mm -hmm. the ways like when you were hurt or when, um, or when you were disempowered. And I, in my mind, I think whatever you pay attention to grows and that it's easy to find all the things that we don't want and the things that um, we feel persecuted by or whatever the story is that there's really easy to, get lost in the story but having an idea of what you like what the thing is you most want whether that's to not have an eating disorder to feel strong and powerful in your body to feel your body is like a vehicle of pleasure to feel like you're having fucking mind-blowing sex with your partner like you're desiring them to feel like you're alive like whatever it is that really lives inside you and part of the work I do is finding out what that is does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I also think coming from punk where like so much of punk identity is about um, like defining ourselves in opposition to X, Y, or Z element <laughs> of square society. You know, it's like there's not as much um, mm -hmm. affirmative definition it's not totally. like it's not like we are for this it's like we're against totally and that was a really bit like i feel like part of the work um, i'm doing is so unpacking so like there's so many different ways that people came to punk and there was so like i think of you and i think of aaron and i think of so many other people that created like used it as a real creative vehicle to make the change that they wanted to see in the world but i did not like i was like this is how we're fucked our parents didn't have money. We were abused. You know, like I really had a strong story in my mind of like how I'd been fucked by society. And like I lived, that was like the fuel for my car for a really long time and realizing like, oh, I can change my life. And I like these places where I was drawing power from aren't very empowering and they're not fucking helping me. That was like, that was really big for me to like turn the corner of 
wait, what do what what do I want to create in my life, and how can I get that? Where you know, and and not the story of why I can't or who did what to me, but like, where do I actually have power, and how can I like manifest it to make what I want exist in the world? Damn, yeah, and this is not some like. It doesn't seem like this is like a a sort of like you can will yourself to have a <laughs> Rolls Royce situation. You know, like it's like a like the sort of predatory evangelical like you have to you can manifest wealth kind of attitude. It's more like um you know, not to use mm-hmm. like sort of my own recovery analogs, uh, but like I think really thinking through and and like the sort of serenity prayer mindset where it's like sure there's a lot of stuff that can't be changed but uh like i can't change my past you know i can't change the harm that's been done to me i can't change my scars and my wounds but like that that's not all there is there also are these Mm -hmm. things that that can be changed yeah i can change them and i should if they're not serving me um (laughs) That's beautiful. That's really, that's, that's well, a really wonderful thing that you're doing. Yeah. And I think there's also like something else that I've tend that I've been thinking about a lot lately is like our focus on good and bad and going through hard things, like, especially this time right now when we're in a fucking pandemic and it's brutal in a lot of ways. But I also think like, I was thinking about holidays and how most holidays like whatever the tradition that they exist in was born out of like like the darkest night, no oil, (laughs) you know, like we are in the desert. We are like in a barn, you know, people are being slaughtered. Like they're born of these really dark times. And I feel like that's when we actually find out what we want and what we care about. And like, that's when we wake up and it's like being awake can be so painful, but it's also like when change occurs and when you're sort of like when the soil gets um, like when you're ripping the things out that aren't working and finding like, what do I want here? What do I want to create? What do I want it to be? And what do I want it to look like? And so there's so much of my past that I think of now that I'm like, oh, I would never have become the person that I am if it was like, I would never be able to have empathy in the way that I have empathy if this thing hadn't happened, you know, like having a father with it you know, was schizophrenic allowed me to realize that people can like, not everybody in the world thinks like I do and has the same um, like structures that they're operating from. And so I feel like it's given me an understanding of people's freedom that, that, and like the beauty of, of that. So yeah, there's, there's like a lot of pieces of it. And, um, and I think one of them is that like the things that are like, in the darkness and in the bad times and in the suffering and in the struggle, like that is like, there's so much beauty and possibility there. Um, so I think a lot, I'll try and make this succinct, but that a lot of times the things that people want most right underneath them are like their biggest terrors or like pieces inside their body. Like, I don't know what it is you call and desire most in the world like your deepest, deepest desire. But there's a possibility that if you really thought Mm -hmm. about it and you thought about it in like a five senses reality where you brought your whole nervous system online, that something inside of you would be like, we'll die if we get this. 
truly. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think that's uh, no, true I, for a 100%. lot of people and a lot. And like, there's so much in society, like, especially with women and pleasure, like, fuck, I've been thinking about like horror movies and how they are women in the dark in the forest at night. And I'm like, oh, that like, I'm just doing this whole thing in my mind where I'm thinking of like witches and witch hunts and witch slaughter and like how beautiful the forest is at night. But when I'm there, I'm terrified and I think I'm going to be bodily mutilated. Like there's all of these things um, that just subtly and not subtly have been put inside of like, I keep thinking of a garden, but like you have this garden and when you're born, everybody fucking plants their shit in it. And then you will grow up and you're like, wait, what's this? What? You know, like, why do I think this? It's not even mine, but I've just lived with it my whole life and assumed it. And deep inside me, there's something that's like, won't go for the thing I want because I don't think I'll survive it. I think I won't belong. I think that I'll, you know, like, that I'll be rejected, that no one will love me, whatever it is, whatever like your individual story is, that there's a lot that almost always, if there's, if you don't have what you want, and I know we're talking about things and it's easy to think of like that being corrupt or money, but I feel like a lot of times people's deepest desire has to do with them being fully realized and like letting their, like the deepest light of who they are shine and come out that like, however they get there, even if it's like, I want a Porsche, if they actually did the work on like getting the Porsche that they would uncover their deepest, like light that needs to exist in the world. And I know I'm getting far, far afield <laughs> in this talk, but. Um... I mean, Elizabeth, as someone who spent, seven years convincing myself that I shouldn't transition from like the mm. moment when I decided I realized pretty mm -hmm. definitively, this is what I need to do. And then I spent the better part of a decade talking myself out of it and like coming up with a million reasons why I, sh sh if I, since I hadn't yeah. done it yet, it was too late or I couldn't do it for this reason. Or like I, you know, I spent yeah. so much time feeling unsafe in the world and, um, and like had finally sort of learned how to posture, like doing like the, the like body language code switch to not feel like mm. I would be identified as other by other men as a failure. And like, I could just exist in public without just constantly Fuck. being afraid of violence coming my way. Like, and then like being like, Oh, so now I'm going to start, start shooting fucking estrogen. Like that's mm -hmm. a great way to just be scared again, you know? And, like, there's so many reasons why I was just, like, no, I shouldn't, I can't, I shouldn't, I can't, I shouldn't, I can't. I didn't for so long. And literally the only regret that I have <laughs> is that I didn't for so long. You know, like, I don't, I don't regret starting. I don't regret um, feeling scared outside sometimes in new ways. Like, I don't regret yeah. any of the – I don't regret anything about being, being a woman or about, like, pursuing – uh, that sort of yeah, deep yes. structural change of myself. Um, but I fucking try, I just like mm. held myself back from it for so long. And like the, what you're describing is, is super. It really speaks to me in terms of like, yeah, why, you know? And the funny thing now is that like, it's like, well, what is my desire now? You know, like I, I'm like, 14 months into this thing that I've been putting off for so long. And now it's like, <laughs> yeah. we're just going to keep peeling the onion, you know, like there's gotta be a, now that I am this person, <laughs> That's now the, what do I want? Yeah. Go on. And like, truly when I thought about 
you know, I can't think of the, I, I don't know what the, my greatest desire is in this moment, but like when I thought about my greatest desire for yep. so long, which was to not be a man to, and like specifically <laughs> to be a lady, um, that was fucking terrible. Colin, I just want to say, I'm girl. I'm like literally so crying right now, and scary. I feel like so fucking proud of you. Like I wish I could just run behind you, being like, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. Like this, like my job's the greatest fucking thing in the world. But like, I I feel like that call to be who you truly are and be brave. It's like it's such a big deal anyway. But I feel like how it speaks to the world and the possibilities of what people are allowed to be and being allowed to be who you truly are. Like what a gift. And also I just like, God, I love you so much. I'm so I'm so glad that you, that you, that you did this journey and that you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm crying too for what it's worth. I've been crying since like six or seven minutes ago when you started talking about the garden. Um, the uh, which is great. It's a great interview when both people. I cry at like the drop of a hat these days, but I do feel like being able to like look the the terror, like the deep terror of uh, that's underneath the things that you really want is like the process of being alive. You know that that in that there's there's so much inquiry and like I like I feel like every fantastical like harry potter all of the movies that people love like inside of it is there's this adventure and like you're going inside and finding these deep and scary parts and and being with them and learning how to be with yourself and learning how to survive things that you thought you couldn't and that's just so magnificent yeah absolutely um do you, I've never like tried to have a topical thing in an interview before, so I don't know if it'll work, but I, I can't, I've been thinking about this sort of since the beginning of our conversation, it occurred to me, but do you have any like, um, <laughs> like tips for people to manage COVID to, to manage like the, like, like, especially like not just people, but like people like us, people that come from a, um, a, and that could be, it doesn't have to be <laughs> punks. It could be fucking ravers or whatever, but, or even God forbid, even a hippie, but like people that, that participate in a culture that involves like yeah. a lot of collective catharsis um, and like what to do um, to find that sort of emotional resolution at a time when like <laughs> you can't just be sweaty in a room with a bunch of yeah, friends and strangers. I think so many things. Um but I think like a lot of the work, there's a lot of pieces that go into, into, um, into the coaching, but a big piece of it is being able that a lot of times the things that we want most from other people, we're, God, this sounds fucked. We're never actually going to get <laughs> like, we have this fantasy and we feel let mm -hmm. down by people and we feel like we can't trust anyone, but that so much, like if I could give everybody advice, it would be let, Advice is not a word I love. But what I've done and what's really helped is being able to feel your feelings and like that this is heartbreaking and to being be able to cry and to be able to be sad. Because I think that we spend a lot of time like doing things that we think of as fun, you know, like that, like 
watching movies or being on the internet, like things that we think of as um, like pleasurable are actually pretty numbing and, and being able to actually mm-hmm. feel your feelings is um, I think powerful for moving through them so that they're not something that like grows, like the shadow of them goes really hugely in like in the corner of your eye and seems more and more terrifying. So I've been, I also, I actually am also really a physical person. So I like, I will do burpees until I feel like I'm going to puke and Mm -hmm. then cry and then laugh. (laughs) Like, I think moving your body is a really good catharsis. Um, But I think like being tender with yourself and being sweet and, um, and letting yourself feel things and being able to, like cry and hold yourself and be and have it be okay that you're crying and okay that you be that you feel sad and okay that like you that we're totally isolated from each other and it's such a weird and crazy and fucked up time and of course we feel that um so i i think there's a lot in finding the pieces of yourself that feel really heartbroken and being able to care for them like the world's best parent or the world's best caregiver. Uh, But having the inquiry to say, what do I need and how can I give it to myself? I think is really important. And like, I say that like it's nothing, but it's, that's really fucking hard. (laughs) Like, I feel like there's so many things that we reach for before we reach for like, can I make the connection to like love and care for myself and, and be sweet. He could be the one, he could be the one, he could be the one, he could be the one. And that is it. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I really am grateful to Elizabeth for being so open and honest in this conversation. And this, especially the very end of this episode is the sort of thing I'm always looking for on this podcast, um, which is like straightforward and um, earnest conversations about personal transformation and the ways that uh, punk has made our lives so much fucking better. Um, so thank you to Elizabeth for being willing to share. And thank you to LaCara Occulta for writing the theme song. And thank you to Panty Raid for their song, He Could Be The One, which we're listening to right now. Uh, Panty Raid features Elizabeth's former roommates, Seth and Janelle, which is why we're playing it. And um, that's it. Give me a review. Five stars. I need affirmation from strangers or else I will drop dead. See you next year. Fuck ice, free Palestine, no cops, no creeps, no borders, peace in the pizzeria, I'm out.